You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, so in a minute here, I'm going to introduce you to James Cleaver. They've lived here uh, since the end of last year, moved to Sioux Falls, and I'll tell you a little bit more. But I get to introduce James. This is the best part. I get to introduce James to you. And so in many ways, I get to say, hey, James, I, I want to introduce you to, to some members and some not members and guests of Connection Church. They are the most gracious and patient gathering of people I have ever seen. And I know that because every single week I stand up here and test their patience and they are, and they're so, mer- they, sometimes they even nod. They're, it's the, like the amount of mercy that's coming, the amount of mercy that comes from this side of the room to this side, I, I'm convinced is a whole lot more than maybe the mercy coming from this to this. So I, you guys have been so gracious and I'm, and I get to, get to share some of the, not only do we got to, I get to share some of people we love in our church to preach, but I get to share people I love with, with the other people I love our church. So thank you for being that. So James and Amy and their little baby boy Henry have moved to Sioux Falls at the end of this last year. And here's something we get to kind of go public with this morning. Uh, James and Amy are discerning a call to plant a church that will be focused on reaching college students in Brookings, South Dakota. And, uh, and so this is something we're excited about. We believe that the next generation being sent to, to, to the ends of the earth are college students. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty hard to get any, some of you who own a house and have a, have a career here, it's hard to get you to, if I told you, hey, I need you to uh, pack up and move. I need you to send, we need to send you to go plant a church in some place that needs to hear the gospel. You're like, no. Uh, you tell a bunch of college students to, to, they need to go and we're going to send them. They're like, I was going to go anyway. I don't, know, I don't know what you're waiting for, right? And so we think this is one of the most powerful things. For me personally, the Lord gripped my own heart and changed my life while I was in college. Uh, and so we want to see this happen in our own city, but in other cities are, are in, the, in the region. And so I get to introduce James to you this morning. He's going to preach to us, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about that as, as we are planning to invite him into a church planting residency uh, toward the end of this year or the beginning of next year with the hope of, of, of sending him and his family to help plant a church in, in Brookings, South Dakota. Here's what this means for you. Um, I've thought of different ways to, to share this with you, and here's, here's the way in my head it, it, it kind of makes sense. If right now... This is, this, this is going to mess with you, and I want you to know the Holy Spirit's doing this. It won't be me. If right now you're like sending a resume out to, like you're thinking about changing careers or jobs, you're thinking about sending a resume, uh, or you're drafting a resume for like this next era, you know, season of your life of work and career, I want to I challenge you with the possibility and, and invite you to consider what would it look like for you to send a resume to Brookings, South Dakota, that God might be drawing you to to go and to to reach more people with the good news of Jesus. So uh, James is going to tell you all more about that. So I'm going to invite James, would you join me? Uh, And he's going to preach to us from Mark chapter 8. And uh, he's been an encouragement to me. He's been uh, just his excitement for for the Lord and love for the word has been a pleasure to get to benefit from. And I know it's going to benefit you this morning as well. So here we go. Uh, yes, as Jonathan said, God has put a call in our, our heart to, to plant a church in Brookings, South Dakota, focus on the, on the university of South Dakota State. Many of you are very familiar with South Dakota State University. Some of you are familiar with it from being from another town further south. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, that's where my wife graduated from, too, so, you know, it works. But, um, yeah, that's just something that God has really put on our hearts to, to minister and, and reach the next generation, as Jonathan says, if you've ever been uh, around a college context that you're, you're really 
looking to engage college students, not just in a, in a way that maybe you went to college and college was not a place where uh, you sought Jesus at all. Uh, and maybe that sparks your, your imagination, maybe that sparks your heart to want to be involved in something like that. But also, if you were in that situation, and if you were there, and, and you engaged with Jesus, you know that it's such a transformative time in your life. Every question that could possibly be asked about where my life is going and what am I doing is asked in those four years, right? And Jesus has those answers. That, those are answers that Jesus wants to answer. Those are actually answers that Jesus has already answered. And, and we want to be there to take that freshman or sophomore who is struggling with now what? I just moved from Oneida to Brookings, South Dakota, and I have no idea what is going on here. I thought I had everything figured out, and my world has completely crumbled. And we want to sit there and bring the love and message and word and work and person of Jesus into their life and say, this is how your world isn't crumbling. This is how Jesus is recreating you into a new person. And that's the message that, that we want to, uh, yeah, take to the campus of South Dakota State and just be a light, be salt and light on that campus. Um, something that we're very passionate about, something that I love. Uh, and as Jonathan said, there's, there's added benefits, is that college students are going someplace. They're not, they're not staying in Brookings for an, a career most of the time, right? They're going someplace. So, you know, that, that student that comes from Oneida and hit, hits up Brookings and, and is there for four years, maybe they're going back to a family farm and a family church. And maybe they're going to be a leader there in that church now. It's just, I don't know, I could talk about that all day. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. Um, God, God has put a message on my heart also um, that, that connects with something else Jonathan was saying about maybe what do we consider God doing in our lives. Uh, it, is, it is a hard ask if you have a career and you have a house and you have a family and you're here and some guy like me is saying, man, God is doing something amazing in Brookings. That's a hard ask, and, but I'm still going to ask you to move to Brookings, you know, and I'll let God make a work on your heart, yes or no, you know, but uh, that's not going to keep me from asking you, you know, so just be ready for that as I get to know you, um, yeah, that, that we'll probably have that conversation, so uh, this morning we're going to be in Mark, Mark chapter 8, um, this is something that God has really been putting on my heart and really been dealing with me, and we're going to be in Mark 8, 27 through 38. We're going to be dealing mainly with the second part of that passage, but that's where we're going to be starting. Uh, if you have a cell phone, it's in there. Find your way through a Bible app or something. If you don't have a cell phone or don't have a Bible app, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. Um, it, it has the book of Mark in it. I believe the passage that we're in is on page 492. Uh, there's also a table of contents at the, at the beginning to find that. Um, this is a, a unique encounter in the life of Jesus. Um, if you've lived your life in church, if you're familiar with the teachings of Jesus, you have heard this passage before. We're going to talk about denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. That's something that if you have been around the uh, Jesus world, the religious world, you've heard those statements, whether it's um, in a sermon or on some sort of uh, religious-centric inspirational poster. Um, you've probably heard those words if, if you've been around that. If you haven't, if this is the first time you've ever heard 
the name of Jesus, um, man, that's encouraging that you're here. That's exciting. I have no idea what caused you to be here if you've never heard the name of Jesus, but obviously it's God working on your life, and I, I hope that God speaks through this. I know that this may be strange, especially if you just like sat here and watched a whole bunch of sing uh, some weird songs because like nobody ever does that. And I, I don't know. I've, I've been struck with that recently, just like how strange that is, but it's also an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to praise Jesus. Uh, and, and so hopefully you're not too weirded out by that. Um, to focus on what Jesus is telling us through His Word, because we are reading the words of Jesus this morning. See, uh, in, in Mark 8, uh, 34 through 38, Jesus is issuing a command. Now, the commands of Jesus, when we read the commands of Jesus in Scripture, um, it's very easy to fall kind of into two errors. Uh, it's very easy to turn into like a legalist, and like, man, I can do this. Or it's very easy to just kind of like, kind of blow it off like that was for another day and another time. But Jesus wants us to lean into that a little bit differently. differently. See, when Jesus commands something, his commands flow through his work. They flow from what he has done through what we call the gospel, right? It's what he, the sacrifice he has made for us on the cross. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says that because of who he is and what he has done. It's not something that we are called to do to earn his favor. It is something that we are called to do from his favor. And those are very different things. So let's, let's flip to Mark chapter 8. We're going to read 27 verses 27 through 38, just to kind of get the whole context, because because it all mashes together. We can't just pull one verse and, and roll with it, you know. Jesus, so this is 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And then calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. So, as we kind of just back up all the way to the beginning of this passage, let, let's paint a, a vivid picture in our heads of what's going on here. We have Jesus and the disciples, and they're just, they're walking down the road. They're going someplace. You know, Jesus is constantly going from place to place. Um, 
He, they're going through the villages of Caesarea Philippi in this. And along the way, Peter, or Jesus says, hey, disciples, who do people say that I am? And they had all kinds of answers for that. See, the people of Israel at that time were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting uh, the Redeemer of God's people to come. But they weren't really sure that's who Jesus was. They expected something different than Jesus. And so they had all these opinions of maybe who Jesus was. Maybe he's this guy, John the Baptist. Maybe he's this guy, Elijah. Maybe he's some other prophet that if you flip over into the Old Testament, there's a whole bunch of really weird names of books, and that's the prophets that they're talking about, right? Habakkuk and Haggai and some of these, some of these guys. They're like, maybe, maybe they're one of those guys that has come back. But Jesus then says, okay, but who do you say that I am? You have been with me. You have walked with me. You have seen who I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, ever the, ever the one to like actually give an answer, right, says, you are the Messiah. That's a big statement. In, in Matthew, Matthew records this slightly differently. Um, he, Matthew includes a statement of Jesus after this where he says, that is correct, Peter, and the only way you know this is because God has revealed it to you. See, Peter is not speaking because he just like, put two and two together and figure this out. Um, as you hopefully dig into the Word of God and read who Jesus is and, and what He did when He was on earth, you will be struck by Peter that Peter would never have figured something out. Um, that's just not what Peter was really capable of doing. Everything is revealed to Peter and us, really. Like, Peter's not alone. We don't figure this stuff out on our own either. What we know about God is revealed to us. We could never say, Jesus, you are Messiah, without God revealing that to us in the first place. And so uh, that, is, that is what is happening here with Peter. And then Jesus. Jesus wants to, to make sure they understand what that means. See, they had this notion in their minds of what the Messiah was. And that notion was that he would show up and he would restore the nation of Israel and he would save them from Roman oppression, which they were under at the time. And he would redeem the people of God and set them back up like in their glory days, right? But Jesus wants to make sure that they understand what kind of Messiah he is. The Messiah that the the, the prophets have been talking about up to this point is different than what they have in their minds. See, in, in that next passage, 31 through 33, Jesus begins to subvert the thinking of Peter and the rest of the disciples. Instead of teaching of his upcoming victory and triumph, an earthly physical kingdom, he begins teaching about suffering and rejection and death. He says that's what is in store for the Messiah. Now, he also clearly mentions that he's going to be resurrected three days after that, but the disciples kind of missed that part or didn't really understand what that meant, right? Don't miss this part. This is what is central to what Jesus is teaching about himself. The rest of this passage we're going to read makes no sense if we don't understand this part. 
Jesus is declaring himself as Messiah, the one who would come to set all things right, to redeem the people of God and to bring peace. Jesus is teaching that he will do these things, but do them in a way that is different than what his disciples expected. See, it is through his death that Jesus sets things right. He is not interested in setting up temporary political systems that are right. He isn't interested in healing the, the damaged world uh, by uh, human rebellion. Like, he is interested in redeeming those that follow him from the disastrous effects of their sin, of the rebellion against God, of the wickedness and evil that is in our hearts. He isn't interested in temporary and regional peace. He is interested in, through his death on the cross, bringing people into a relationship with God and at peace with God. That's the peace that he's interested in. But see, Peter and the rest of the disciples don't really understand any of this. He's confused. And he decides to, to like, call Jesus aside, right, and say, hey, Jesus, like, that's not what the Messiah is all about. You're supposed to, like, show up on a horse and be a king and do all these cool things. And, like, you definitely lose people following you when you start talking about dying. That's kind of not how this works. But Jesus knows what he's there for. Jesus knows the plan of history. And so Jesus doubles down. He rebukes Peter with some pretty harsh language, right? He calls Peter's thoughts satanic. And he, instead of talking about suffering and death just to his disciples, he calls a crowd. You know, Peter's like, hey, Jesus, come over here. Let's talk a little bit. And Jesus is like, actually, let's talk to the crowd. Let's, let's like double down on this whole death and suffering thing. And he brings the crowd around and starts talking about death and suffering again, you know. The disciples were thinking wrongly and that they thought Jesus had come to make their current situation a better version of the current situation. They saw Jesus as a political Messiah. Jesus is declaring that he is the one who defines what kind of Messiah he is. He defines who he is, what he came to do, and even what it means to follow him. To drive that point home further, he begins to tell them what it means to be his follower in order that they better understand what his purpose is. Right? So that's, that's where we're getting into, into the deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him part that we really want to hone in on. That's not something that is independent of what Jesus is saying about himself. He is using that to show his disciples who he is. This is not primarily a go and do thing. This is primarily a come and see what I've done and join me in it thing. Those are two very different things. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about denying self. There in verse 34, it says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what is denial of self? What does that even mean? When we think of denying ourselves, we typically think of denying ourselves something, right? We limit our intake of this or our exposure to that. We connect denying ourselves with the wrong why. We assume that we are denying ourselves something so that we can be better followers, so that we can do more good things, 
so that we can increase our morality. Throughout the history of Christianity, you see this, right? This has been the case. This has been, this has been the way many people have thought about this. The extreme examples, if you think of like the Middle Ages and, and monks that have gone off into, you know, the, the boondocks and separated themselves from society and, and spent their entire careers gardening turnips, right? Like, those are the kind of denying self things that maybe we think of when we think of this statement. More recently, maybe you grew up or are familiar with some uh, religious home where your grandparents or your great-grandparents, you know, had zero cards, they didn't listen to rock and roll, like, you know, deny yourself these things because that makes us more moral, that makes us better, right? Maybe you're familiar with that brand of Christianity. But Jesus isn't telling anyone to deny themselves something to become better followers, but to deny themselves to be followers. Let's say that again. Jesus isn't telling anyone to deny themselves something to become better followers, but to deny themselves to be followers. That's an important distinction that Jesus is making. Let's put it another way. This denial is a renouncing of self. It is a command to stop making self the object of our life and actions. There's a couple of ways that manifests itself, right? Jesus claims the authority to define who you and I are. Jesus demands that we deny or renounce any perceived right we believe we have to be who we want to be. Maybe you have personally crafted an image of yourself as a certain type of person. Maybe you have an ideal you're shooting for. Maybe you don't really care and are just who you are. To follow Jesus, we don't get that option. Throughout the Bible, if you dig into, into what Jesus is saying in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John throughout Jesus' life, or what his disciples and followers later wrote in the letters that follow that, um, we were given a picture of what a follower of Jesus, what someone who's included in the people of God is like. It's easy to point to ourselves, possibly even using some sort of personality test, and say, yes, I can be rude, uncaring, a little harsh, gruff, ungrateful, arrogant, and I can say whatever I want regardless of how it affects others because that's just who I am and I'm a number whatever I am, right? Like, it's easy to make that excuse. According to Jesus, though, we don't get to say that. You don't get to just be who you are. You don't get, get to follow whichever way your natural self wants you to go. We're called to reject conformance to that way of thinking and to be transformed by a renewing of our mind and heart. And that comes from the work of Jesus in us. We are called to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. That's what we are called to. We're called to getting a new heart, a new mind. That personality test may still say you're a number whatever, but Jesus says, let me give you something else. Let me craft that and make that into something else. There is another way. 
Jesus doesn't call us to renounce the authority to define who we are because he is cruel. He does it because he is kind. Attempting to retain the authority of self-determination for ourselves will destroy us. The more we look for who we are within ourselves, the more confused and overwhelmed we become. I go back to where we started with, well, actually before what we started with is talking about working with college students. Guys, I see this. The more we try to construct who I want to be, the more everything falls apart. The weight of that authority and responsibility is more than we can handle. We were not made for it. It's crushing. But there's another way. That's the good news. Jesus is not commanding us to let go of self-determination because he wants a bunch of featureless, droning robots. Jesus came and he died in our place so that he could take our self-determination on himself because that leads to death. When we try to make our own way, that leads to death. And Jesus says, let me take that on myself and let me give you a new and better identity. Let me give you something better. See, I have a nine-month-old son. And sometimes he finds things that he shouldn't have, typically around trash cans or outside. He loves the taste of rocks right now for some reason. But he shouldn't be eating rocks. And I have something better for him. But you know what he has to do to take the something better? He has to let go of the rock. He has to let go of the nasty rock or the rotten leaf, or whatever he's pulled out of the recycle bin, to take the something better, he has to let go of it. And that is what Jesus is calling us to. He's not asking you to let go of defining yourself because he's mean. He wants to take the nasty rock out of your mouth and give you something better. This is wonderful news, because the identity that Jesus gives us is better than anything we can come up with ourselves. When we surrender our identity to his authority, we're called collectively the bride of Christ, the people of God, the body of Christ, and many other such things. And there's something even more wonderful if we peel back a layer there. They all have something else in common. They represent our union with Christ, our oneness with Jesus. See, when, when Jesus completed his work on earth, at the cross, and he died in your place and my place. He did so so that we could be reunited in relationship with him. See, when Jesus wants to claim authority over us, authority over who we are, he does so so that he can share his identity with us. So then we are called adopted children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Think about that for a second. If you will renounce the misguided attempt to create your own identity of yourself and allow for the supreme, all-knowing, all-powerful, good God who created the universe to craft you into who He wants you to be, 
He has created you to be. He wants to call you child and brother and sister. That's what he wants to call you. Friend, that's a better identity than I could ever craft for myself. In the same way, Jesus claims authority to determine our purpose and our agenda in life. In effect, Jesus demands that we deny or renounce any perceived right we believe we have to do what we want to do, right? He has, he has told us, I want to have authority to tell you who you are, and now I want to have authority to tell you what you do. But there's a deeper point here, because why do we do what we do? We construct our life's purpose. We set the agenda. When we make these decisions, we are motivated by our desires. Jesus is telling us to give up those desires for new desires. This is like the opposite of what we typically do, right? When we consider following any type of leader, what, what consideration do we make? Well, what are they going to give me? Do they think like I think? Do they give me what I want? You know, our conditions are set by ourselves when we want to follow somebody or vote for somebody, right? It's not based on, on what we can do for them, right? I mean, that's, that's what made JFK's thing so big, right? Do not think what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's why it was such a resounding thing, because everybody thinks, what can you do for me? Like, that's the whole thing, right? And, and Jesus is saying, no. Jesus doesn't want to hear our sales pitch for why he should endorse our plan. Like, he's not interested in setting down and saying, okay, you tell me what your plan is for your life, and I'll see if I want to, like, invest in that and put some power behind it. Jesus is, again, telling us to let go of that. He's saying, let go of the rock. Let go of that nasty thing you're putting in your mouth. Let go of the drive to create your own purpose. Let go of the need to set your own agenda. And most of all, let go of those shallow desires that you have. Those desires, or better better put, pursuing the things that we think will satisfy our desires, is exactly what has separated us from God. Like, that is what has separated us from God. When we say, God, independent of you, I want to make my own way in the world. I want to do my own thing, and I want to live for my own purpose. That is the very nature of rebellion. And that is the very nature of the thing that drives us away from God, that takes us away from God. But that is the very thing that Jesus came to pay for. When we set a purpose and agenda for our lives that we believe will bring us to the things that we desire, we are not actually mapping out a path to the good life. We are mapping out a path that leads to death. Eternal separation from God. That may not sound like a big deal. Maybe I want to be eternally separated from God. Maybe I'm not interested in God at all. Here's the thing. Every single good thing that is you have any contact with is found in God. Have you ever experienced happiness or joy or love? None of those things exist apart from God. None of them. 
So when we map a path that leads us away from God, we may think we are mapping a path that will make us most happy, that will make us most content, that will bring us the most satisfaction, but we are actually mapping a path that will take us completely the furthest away from those that we could ever possibly imagine. Jesus calls us to a different way. He calls us from the path leading to death and to the path leading to life with new desires. What if we really took the Bible at its word? See, the Bible claims that we can have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, with the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and loves us greater than we could possibly comprehend, which means he will always make the perfect decision. If he really is all-wise, he knows the future and the best outcomes for us. If he really is all-powerful and can control the world, there are no circumstances, no risks, and nothing that surprises him. There's no risk in his decisions. If he really does love us, to such an extreme level that he would send his own son to die in our place. And even more than we can comprehend, the best decision that we could ever make is to listen to him and seek where he's leading us. Like, I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen in two hours. Like, think about it. You turn on the, you turn on the news last night and try to figure out if it's going to rain today. And nobody knows. <laughs> God knows the exact amount of drops that will fall in six million years from today. If there are six million years from today. Why wouldn't I leave my decision making up to him? We are so afraid that he doesn't have our best interest in mind. And there's not a bigger lie that we believe. See, this is, but, but this is much more difficult than just some general blanket decision to make decisions that seem religious, right? Remember, this is not about denying our desires. It is about denying ourselves, submitting to Christ, and getting new desires better desires. Then Jesus says, take up your cross. Jesus knows what taking up your cross is all about, right? He's about to do that. Remember where this is rooted, though. Jesus has just declared himself Messiah, or been declared Messiah in something he affirms. Then he's talking about death. Listen, Taking up your cross and following Jesus, when, when Jesus says take up your cross, this isn't a metaphor for negative circum, circumstances, a difficult coworker, or some sacrificial way that you may be serving uh, around you. Jesus' example would be like, when Jesus says take up your cross, he's not talking about like washing his disciples' feet, like this is a humbling experience. Jesus is literally telling his disciples he's going to die. And they clearly understand that that's what he means based on Peter's reaction. If they didn't get it before Peter's intervention, they sure heard it loud and clear when Jesus called him Satan, right? I mean, like, 
Jesus, I think you're talking about death. You sure about that? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's sure about that. You know? Listen, there is no break. Jesus says, I'm going to die. You come and die with me. Period. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the way that I'm going. Follow me. There's no qualifications, no allusions to this being a metaphor, no hint that what Jesus really meant is be willing to give up everything. Jesus is saying, come and die. Later, the Apostle Paul, who, who was a missionary in the first century and wrote most of the second half of the New Testament, most of the New Testament as letters, wrote a letter to the Galatians, church in Galatia. And he said this, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, there's good news here. You're not just dying. You're given a new life through the person and work of Jesus. And we identify with the life of Jesus. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just take our sin upon himself. He didn't just take our rebellion and say, I'm paying the price for what James did. He says, I'm also crediting to James my account, my righteousness, my goodness, my standing with God. And that's why Paul can say, Christ lives in me, and now the life that I live, I live by faith. And it's a beautiful thing. So what is Jesus saying here when he says, Dying with him. Think about the imagery. In case we didn't understand denying himself, he paints this picture with a cross. So what is true of us if you were like walking a first century road with a cross tied to your back? Well, the first thing is you have no fight left, right? This is not, this is not some sort of defiant death going down in a blaze of glory right? This is none of that. This is, I am so beaten. I am so humiliated. I am so subjugated to the ruling authority that I am literally willingly carrying the instrument of my death to my death place. There's no fight left. Will is crushed. He lost. You got nothing left. You just kind of hope it ends. Second, I mean, your death's inevitable, right? You know that the, at the end of this path, there's a cross waiting for you. There's death waiting for you. That's, that's not going to change. There's nothing that's going to change that. Every breath you take, you know, like you can probably count on one hand how many you have left. That's the imagery that Jesus wants to sink in. He wants us to feel it and understand it. Not because he wants to crush us. He's saying, come, willingly do this. So when we assume those attributes, like let's, let's take that imagery and apply it to our lives, right? 
if we are carrying our cross, we are completely surrendered to him to the point that we appear to have no self-will. Once again, Paul, when he was reflecting on the death of Christ, writing a letter to the church at Philippi, this is in uh, the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right? You see how he's like, live your life in a way that everyone else around you is more important than yourself. And not, not just in a way that like you're willing to take the back seat to everyone else, but you're actively pursuing the interest of others above your own interests. Jesus gives a definition of what it means to renounce self, right? This is it. And also, we're to live as dead people. Death is inevitable, and it comes pretty quickly, relatively to like world history, right? James, another writer in the New Testament, says it this way, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That could be depressing, but it's not because it motivates us and gives us a reason to follow who Jesus is. The whole teaching of Jesus, we just saw that as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, right? Is full of this idea that living for this life is pointless and useless. Instead, we're to live for the life to come. Store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Sell out for the work of Jesus. Let God provide whatever he decides to provide for us on this earth and bank on an eternal reward. All those things, though, denying yourself, taking up your cross, these are ideas that Jesus is using to convey the idea of following him. Back to that very first passage that we talked about, right? Jesus is saying, this is what I am coming to do. Let me explain to you what that means. Let me show you what following me looks like, and maybe you will get a better idea of how and where I'm going. When Jesus says, follow me, he, he isn't meaning in like some partially religious way. Maybe following Jesus means something more than labeling ourselves with some religious label or ascribing to a moral code. When Jesus says, follow me, he says, pursue me, come with me, join me in everything that I'm doing. Following Jesus isn't something that his disciples added to their life. These guys, some of these guys, some of their names were Matthew, Mark, that's who wrote this, this book. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he later followed Jesus. Then there was these brothers, Peter and Andrew, another couple of brothers, James and John, they were fishermen. He called them. He said, come follow me. They were fishing with their dad, like a family business. And they just walked away. Matthew had a lucrative career. He was a tax collector. And Jesus walked up to him and said, follow me. And he just walked away. And he completely sold out to Jesus. They weren't following Jesus part-time. They were walking up and down Israel all the time, with Jesus. 
completely following him. And this wasn't uncommon in that day. Usually there would be like a rabbi who would like show up and be around a bunch of like wannabe rabbis and they'd be like looking for somebody to follow and the rabbi would say, hey, follow me and I'll go teach this like little obscure text and we'll talk about things and it'll be really cool and all these little rabbis would follow. But Jesus did it to fishermen and tax collectors and religious nuts. And he said, follow me. I'm not calling people who are already wanting to kind of be in this like little niche market. I'm calling people who have something to lose. See, when Jesus says, come follow me, he knows that you're giving up something. He knows that it costs something. And he's saying it's worth it. Verses 35 through 38 tells why it's worth it. It says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will gain it. See, we can tie this back to his rebuke of Peter. He says, You are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of men. Clearly, there's a difference between the two. Jesus contrasts the attempt to save our life with losing it to later losing it and or gaining it, right? If you try to save it here, you will lose it later. But if you try, if you're willing to lose it here, that means you will gain everything later. Jesus is calling us to something greater, to something more, a better form of life. Yes, it will cost us this life, but that's a small price to pay. Remember, it's a mist. It's inconsequential. Paul says it this way. Paul is writing to another church. He wrote to a lot of churches. He wrote to this church in Corinth in uh, the book, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, for this light and momentary affliction. This is a guy who has been like beat, stoned, attempted to be killed, abandoned at sea in shipwrecks. Like this guy has been through the persecution ringer and he calls them momentary and light afflictions. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us the eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I hope you're catching a theme here. Jesus is not calling us to something less. He's calling us to something more. He isn't calling us to give up things for the sake of giving it up, to sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice, to just to deprive us of something. He is calling us to let go of worthless trash so that we can be given unimaginable riches. An author I love, C.S. Lewis, said it like this. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not as self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. He goes on to say, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle. We settle for the trash can that is this world. And God is saying, no, I have something so much better for you. I can't even describe it. You won't understand it. Just come with me. I will show you what it is. Self-denial, taking up your cross, living the way of Jesus is not the end. They are the way to the end. The end is glorious reward. And when you think about what that is, it's not something different for each of us. See, sometimes our minds immediately go to like defining it in things of like better earthly things. But the reward in the end is not different. It's not a better version of the things here. The reward is the same for each of us. It is what will satisfy the desires of our heart more than anything that we could possibly imagine because it is what we were created to desire. The reward that we long for, that we truly, heartbreakingly long for and can never satisfy on this earth is to be in the unabated presence of Jesus Christ and be fully known and fully loved by Him. That's the reward. Eternal joy is found in Jesus. Like in His person, in what He has done. Here's a temptation. We can respond to this in a couple of ways. We can be absolutely crushed. Jesus has just demanded a lot of us. We could be crushed by denying myself. I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I can take up my cross. You know what? You're right. That is crushing because we really can't. The other option is that we can really be challenged by it. Some of you guys may be like me. I'm like a to-do list guy. You tell me I can't do it. I'm like, you, you haven't seen my list, right? I bet I can. How do you eat an elephant? A little bit at a time. I can get there right? And so we channel all our effort into performing, hoping to attain a level of success in keeping these requirements that result in our approval and acceptance. Both of those are incorrect responses. Don't be crushed. Don't give in to self-effort. Let's work our way backwards again. Jesus tells us to follow him when someone says, follow me, that's saying something significant about themselves. It's a command to do what they've already done. When Jesus tells his disciples to follow him, he's telling them to do what he has already done. After he has done it. Jesus is calling them to deny themselves as he has denied himself. To take up their crosses as he has taken up his cross. Remember, Jesus is basing this call into what kind of Messiah he is. 
back to that letter from that Paul guy in Philippians, he says it this way. He's describing Jesus. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But see, Jesus doesn't just provide an example. We could stop there and say, oh, Jesus has provided a great example for how to deny ourselves, how to take up our cross. But that's not why he came. It's a benefit. It's a benefit that Jesus provides an example, but that's not his primary purpose. He came to do it for us, to make it possible for us to do. We have wicked and evil hearts that are incapable of denying ourselves. We can't do it. The best we can do is deny ourselves stuff. And Jesus says, I died in your place to give you a new heart. Jesus came to deliver us from our old heart, from our old desires, from our inability to deny ourselves. He denied himself. He came to earth. He literally carried his cross. Think of this imagery. You're carrying your cross, right? You're going down this path, and you know what's waiting for you. And you're like, death is here. This path leads to death. And you get to the end of the line, and there is your cross, and there's already somebody on it. That's where we're at. The path that we walk leads to death, and Jesus says, follow me, come and die, because I've already died in your place. And we can get to that cross, and we can get to the end of the path, and we can lay it down. And Jesus says, come enjoy the riches. You can bypass this whole cross thing. I've already died for you. I've made it possible for you to carry. His death has cleared the way for us to be united with him, to have relationship with him. He's given us a new heart. He's given us new desires. Think about that kid in that slum making mud pies, right? Without someone in coming and saying, take my hand, let's go to the sea, let's go on vacation, let's go build sandcastles, not mud pie in the, in the slums, that kid would never have any idea that there was a sea. Jesus has stepped into our world at great cost and said, Take my hand. Leave this junk and come with me. I have made the way possible. And I will take you on that path. And finally, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have the hope of eternal life. Folks, there is no sea. There is no vacation at sea outside of the promise of Jesus' resurrection, of the actuality of Jesus' resurrection and the promise of our resurrection with him. Jesus makes it clear. Following him requires giving up everything. 
losing our lives and any stake in this world. But it actually means gaining life in the end. We do this not by our own effort, but by get, being given a new heart. A new heart that we get because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And we get a relationship with the Holy Spirit because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, how it speaks to us, how it teaches us, how most importantly it reveals who you are and what you have done to us. God, help us to just love who you are. Help us to give our life over to what you have done. To not try to be a law unto ourselves, but to rely on what you have done, your death, your resurrection, to change who we are. In the name I pray, amen.